Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How's everyone doing? All right, hope everyone's having a good uh, holiday season. Not quite holiday yet, but we're almost there, right? Another, everyone taking off next week, or who's working? I feel bad if you're, if you're up, sorry. Um, so I'm Matt Kressel. I'm the co-host of Fantastic Fiction at KGB here with Ellen Datlow. The series has been going uh, since the late 90s, and it's always been free. All we ask is that you buy a drink, whether it's hard or soft, uh, support the bar, and also tip your bartenders who are working very hard to keep you hydrated. Uh, so also say hi to your bartenders. Um, our two readers tonight are Sarah Pinsker and Livia Llewellyn. We're really excited. I'm really excited. I've, I've uh, been familiar with their, both of their um, work for a long time, and it's always great to, to hear them read. Um, actually, I've heard both of them read, so yeah, so I mean... It's, a, it's, a, it's No, I mean, I'm just saying, like, Livia's read here. Sarah, this is your first time. Where is Sarah? There, this is your first time. But I've heard you read before, so, uh, yeah, this is, this is really cool. Um, we also have, bo- uh, Sarah has books for sale. We have uh, Cyberworld Anthology, which is a, a new cyberpunk anthology edited by Jason Heller and Joshua Viola. And uh, full disclosure, I also have a story in there. Uh, and then also uh, Long Hidden which was edited by uh, Daniel Jose Older and um, Rose Fox. So we have those for sale. Uh, so at the break, uh, come up. Uh, you can buy them from Sarah, and she can sign it for you. Um, just a quick announcement about upcoming readers. Uh, first off, uh, thank you for supporting KGB in 2016. I know it's been a turbulent year, but this series has really uh, been fantastic because of everybody. Um, one little thing is that we do uh, tip the bartenders, we take the readers out for dinner and we give them a small stipend and uh, it costs a little bit of money and uh, a few years ago you might remember we did a fundraiser. Uh, we're going to do another one soon, we haven't figured out quite the details yet but it's always, uh, it's always cool, you can get like little prizes. I think we had like um, one year we had a carniv- carnivorous terrarium, another year we had a... Okay. So, yeah, all right. We'll, we'll edit that out. Um, and then, like, you know, Neil Gaiman one year gave a keyboard that he supposedly wrote the Sandman on. You know, he did this, like, three years in a row. I was like, how many keyboards did you use? <laughs> but, hey, you know, uh, no, but um, it's, it's always uh, fun, So and we always appreciate your support. Um, next month, next year, January 18th, Holly Black and Fran Wilde will be reading for us. February 15th, Michael Sisko and Nicholas Kaufman. Where's Nick? Is Nick here? There he is. Uh, March 15th, Nova Rensuma and Kini Abura Salam will be reading for us. April 19th, Seth, Seth Dickinson and Laura Ann Gilman. Right. May 17th, Sam J. Miller and E.C. Myers. 
June 21st, Catherine M. Valente and Sonny Moraine. July 19th, Karen Hewler and our favorite guest, TVA. Oh, Karen is here. Karen, there she is. And August 16th, Raj and Kana, who was here earlier but had to go. Uh, so yeah, we got, a, we got a nice 2017 lined up for, it, for you, so I hope you'll join us for that. Um, our first reader, Sarah Pinsker, is the author of the Nebula Award-winning novelette Our Lady of the Open Road and the Sturgeon Award-winning Enjoy Knowing the Abyss Behind. Her fiction has appeared in magazines including Asimov, Strange Horizons, Lightspeed, Fantasy and Science Fiction, and Uncanny, among others, and numerous anthologies and years bests. She's also a singer-songwriter. I'm going to add a talented singer-songwriter with three albums on various independent labels and a fourth forthcoming. She lives in Baltimore, Maryland with her wife, dog, and a yard full of sentient vines. Here's Sarah Pinsky. you hear me okay? Cool. This is called Talking to Dead People. It was in fantasy and science fiction in the September-October issue of this year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea who that was. <laughs> okay. Oh, hey, Steve. Yes, I was the one who came up with the name House of Wax, as in Lizzie Borden took an axe. Like, I was someone who could joke about that kind of thing. And yes, it's true that Elizabeth Mint offered me a partnership in the business, and I turned her down. We were college roommates, and I feel comfortable saying I had no business sense whatsoever. If I had seen the same potential in the idea that she did, if I had taken her up on the offer, if I hadn't called it quits on working with her, I would be a millionaire now. She called herself Eliza then, made sure you knew it was Eliza and nothing else. She had a weird love-hate relationship with the whole Lizzie Borden thing. Her family lived in South Jersey when she was a kid, and she was a Lizzie then without anyone making a fuss about it. They moved an hour upstate to Teaneck right before she started high school, right when that big Lizzie Borden movie came out. The next thing she knew, she was Lizzie from Bordentown, and everyone was going around asking her how her parents were. After four years of teasing, she was happy to get a fresh start in college. Despite all that, or maybe because of it, the story held a fascination for her. I didn't understand, but I was used to sharing space with people who couldn't let something go. She dragged me on more than one road trip from Rochester to Fall River, Massachusetts. Dragged me to some other creepy places too. Abandoned sanatoriums, murder sites, serial killer homes. I had no idea how many people made pilgrimages to those places. At least Eliza's interest was pragmatic. Not that I knew it at first. I went along because she paid for gas and I had never been more than 100 miles from home. Having somebody who wanted to go places with me was a novelty too, though in retrospect that may have been her own self-interest reflecting off me. On the way back from one of those places in my old Ford Fiesta, she was the only moneyed person I ever met who didn't drive, she always sat silent while I searched my phone for the cheeriest songs I could think of. Then the questions inevitably came, hey Gwenny, why do you think there was no water in the swimming pool? It's October. Not now, then. He was found in an empty swimming pool in July. I'd mull it over. Do they know whether it was emptied before or after he wound up in there? 
He didn't drown or fall in. He was dead already. Weren't you paying attention? The answer was always no. I'd had enough of murders and missing people by then. I wandered through the sites with the goal of learning as little as possible about the mystery at hand. The whole thing felt voyeuristic to me, lurid to my mind. What went on behind a family's closed doors wasn't meant to be seen, much less solved. Instead of paying attention to the clues, I concentrated on the architecture, interior design, gardening, art. I studied the books on the bookshelves, the furniture, the cutlery. Imagined how I'd replicate them in miniature if I were adding that house to the train towns I'd built in my parents' basement. She'd answer her own question after a while. I'll bet the pool was empty because somebody had convinced old Mr. Haygood that there was some expensive repair that needed to be done while the rest of the family was on vacation. Maybe somebody convinced him that a whole bunch of things needed fixing, the pool needed to be drained, and that he had to pay in advance. Then the family got home and discovered he'd been taken advantage of, and that's what brought down the most popular American politician of the 21st century, a scam. They had money. How does that explain his son in the pool or Senator Haygood disappearing for three weeks? I didn't need to pay attention on a tour to know any of that. If you don't see it, I'm not going to spell it out, Gwen. Then I'd skip to a song I could sing along with, and before too long, she'd apologize and change the subject to make me stop singing. She covered all this in the memoir, the road trips and the questions she asked herself afterward, though she left me out of that part. More introspection, less interrogation. I pretty much got one scene in the book. In her telling, we were on the Mass Pike, an hour into the six-hour drive back to school from Fall River, when she turned to me and said, what if we could ask them questions? In real life, I said, who? And she said, them, you know. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then we played a round of total exasperation. She tightened up the conversation in talking with dead people for clarity's sake. In her version, she said, what if we could ask them questions? The fictionalized me, with perfect grasp of her concept, answered, that would be awesome. What she meant, of course, was what if we gave them a voice? That was her idea, asking questions of murderers and monsters and the unjustly accused. Like a seance, I suggested when I got her implication, also after a much briefer period in her book than in real life. A seance, but better. You go to Fall River and ask Lizzie Borden actual questions and get actual answers in reply. I humored her. You could call it House of Wax, get it? That's the best idea you've ever had. I could hear the grin behind her words. For the rest of the drive, we tried to come up with better names, but that one stuck from the beginning. The name helped focus the project, too. I think her original idea had been animatronic busts of the killers, which to her mind was cool, and to mine was a cross between the Hall of Presidents and the Oswich with the interchangeable heads. She might have stuck with that, but for the fact we didn't know anybody who made the type of sculptures needed to bring those busts to life. Eliza was always good at adapting to what was on hand, and what was on hand was me. Model making was always my thing. First broccoli tree dioramas and ranch dressing dyed river blue. Then whole train towns in the basement with my parents before my brother Tristan disappeared. Then every shop and engineering class my high school offered. Making murder houses wasn't that different. The architectural models I construct now aren't that different either for that matter. People ask, why houses? Why not the people themselves? The answer is, we had a choice between fake looking models of people or real looking models of, of houses. I built the first one in the campus theater set shop where I had my work study gig that year. It was a good job. I liked making things and I liked that the schedule was a sporadic one, even if that meant I'd never had much money. Nothing new there. The prototype was the Borden house, of course, not Maplecroft, her later home, 92 Second Street. On all our visits, Eliza made reservations for us at the bed and breakfast that operates there now. 
She'd book early enough to request the room where Lizzie's stepmother was found murdered. I'd always wander, wandered the halls with an eye toward the house itself rather than the murders, but once she'd explained my role in her plan, I paid even more attention. The stairs width, the orientation of the windows to the day's changing sunlight. It was easy enough to find floor plans and photos online, but my own experiences of the rooms and hallways suffused the project. Jesus, Gwen, said Eliza when I showed her the model she'd commissioned. The west wall swung open on hinges. Every room was in there in perfect proportion. Tiny replicas of the murder couch, the mirrors, the, the railings, functional windows and doors. It stood a foot tall, not including the base, which added about four inches. The boarding house didn't have electricity, so I installed fake miniature gas, gas lamps on the tables and the walls. It's what you asked for, right? Well, yes, but how long did it take you? I added up the days and hours in my head, then shrugged. She turned it around, peered in through the windows. She made all the furniture, she whispered to herself like I couldn't hear her. Amazing. I had left the base hollow, as she'd requested, and she skipped classes the next day to add her electronics. When I got back to the room after dinner, she was lying on her bed reading. Turn it on, she said, rolling over to face me. Her desk was always a mess, in stark contrast with mine. The model sat in the center with tools scattered around it. One shutter was missing, which gave me a pang of anxiety. I felt around the base until I found a switch, but nothing happened. Now what, I asked. Ask her a question. Nothing came to my mind, and after a moment, Eliza groaned and asked in my place, Abby, which way were you facing when you were attacked? I peered into the house, half expecting to see figures inside. Wait, why Abby? I thought you were questioning Lizzie. When we switched to houses instead of busts, I realized we could get everyone in there. She repeated her question. A woman's voice came through the speakers. I recognized Eliza's friend, Angie. I was facing my attacker. Abby, what was the first place you were hit? I was hit in the guest room. I giggled and Eliza gave me a hatchet-shaped look. Abby, she tried again. Where was the first place on your body you were hit? I was hit on the side of my head. Eliza smiled in triumph and continued, Andrew, where did you go when you left the house the morning of your death? A male voice now, one I didn't recognize. A professor, maybe? The voice sounded older than our friends. I went for my morning walk. Who attacked you, I asked. No answer. You have to use a name first, Eliza said. I felt suddenly shy, formal. Um. Mr. Borden, who attacked you? I was asleep. I cocked my head at Eliza. What happens if I ask Mrs. Borden that question, or if I ask Lizzie directly? Try it. Lizzie Borden, did you kill the people you were accused of killing? Lizzie Borden answered in Eliza's awful attempt at a Massachusetts accent. I was acquitted of those crimes. The same voice, lying on the other bed, said, cool, huh? Something tapped against the window behind my bed. A bee caught between the screen and the glass. I crossed the room to free it. It glanced off the window a couple more times before bumbling its way down the side of the building. I flopped onto my bed. I still don't get it, I said. It doesn't know any more than anybody else does. It can only say what you've programmed it to say. If you don't know who did it, it won't know either. Eliza sighed. This is a prototype. It can only answer questions I programmed in. But I'm pretty sure that if I give the AI enough information, if I feed it every single known detail about every victim and every suspect, I can get it to a point where it'll be able to answer questions I don't know the answer to, make connections I haven't made based on what's been input. Maybe. And even if it doesn't, people will buy it anyway. But what's the point? People love unsolved murders, she said, a line she repeated and expanded upon in her memoir. And they love murder houses. I, we, 
are going to make these and sell them to murder house museums. This one is museum quality. And then we're going to make smaller, cheaper ones without furniture or tiny working shutters that fall off when I'm soldering. That stung more than I let on. Nothing fell off my models if they were handled right. My little brother Tristan wrecked more than his share before he wasn't around to do that anymore. But the fault was never in my workmanship. We, huh? We. I stood and poked around the desk until I found the missing shutter amid Eliza's clutter. Fished among my model supplies for the tiny pin that would secure it back in place. The other voices were good, I said, but your Lizzie sounds fake. Two weeks later, she updated the base. The house gave a wider variety of answers. She replaced her own voice with someone who sounded more like the accents we heard in Fall River. On spring break, while I was home, she took a bus to Massachusetts with the house on her lap. She sold it to a general store in town for $1,000. She tossed the money on my bed the first day back at school. They'd paid her online, but she'd taken it out of the bank in 20s. Gwenny, I need to know if we're partners in this. I thought we already were. We can be. I need you to build the models, but I see a couple of ways this can go. Either we're partners and we both put up money to get this business going, and we both make decisions and we split everything 50-50, or you let me pay you for the models, but it's my business. How much would you pay me for the models? That first one was a work of art. We'll need a few more like that. I've got a list of houses. And then some mini versions with no frills. No furniture, no working shutters. For the big ones, you get $600 each plus materials. For the little ones, uh, $50 each. I'd pay you for each one, regardless of whether I was able to sell it or not. There's $900 in that stack for your hard work on the first one. None of this could have happened if you hadn't been able to make that and I hadn't been able to sell the first one. You can have 900 for it if you want to just work for hire. Otherwise, I'll take that money back and invest it in the next step and we're 50-50 partners. Succeed or fail, equal share. I looked at the bills stacked on my bed. I'd never seen that much money in my life and she knew it. My parents weren't particularly well off and after the police stopped looking for Tristan, they spent every penny on private investigations. 900 would let me buy new tires for my car. With more payments like that, I could cover my own fees for the next semester and not need to ask my parents for money they didn't have. Or I could partner with her. But if nobody actually wanted to buy tiny murder houses with tiny murder voices, I'd be left with said murder houses. Money for work, no accountability. Or money for a share with a stake I wasn't sure I could afford not to pocket. I'll work for you, I said. She reached into her bag and pulled out a contract. Let's make it official then. I never found out whether there was a second contract or if I'd answered the other way. People love solving mysteries, she wrote in her book. It makes them feel smart. She had a lot of ideas about what people liked and didn't like, maybe because she saw everyone else as extensions of herself. That part isn't in her book, of course. That's my own theory. We turned our dorm room into a production factory. When the orders started coming in, she rented space in a warehouse and we moved everything there. It was a sauna in summer and freezing in winter, but nobody complained. She hired other friends to handle different aspects of the business, including a cast of voice actors and a couple of electronics people. Mo Barra painted my models, Samuel Gilman built us a website and established a social media presence. Whatever the reason, Eliza was right. People wanted the murder houses. Just a few at first, but then someone solved the Haygood murder using our model, got the case reopened, found a way to prove their hypothesis using the actual evidence, exonerated the family. Senator Haygood even wrote to us to thank us. After that, the orders came in faster than we could fill them. The waiting list only made them more desirable. We offered a range of houses we could assemble in bulk quantities, 
then another higher price tier for custom jobs. We did a Lindbergh, a Ramsey. I saved up enough money to pay my own tuition for the next semester, since I was making more than anyone other than Eliza. Once in a while, I wondered if I made a mistake in not taking the partnership. I still wonder. I think I would have enjoyed the houses she built for forensic schools and the FBI, the case study puzzles they commissioned, like the nutshell studies down in Maryland, but with voices and an AI that could follow lines of questioning. I would have been on board with the murder house owners who paid Eliza for AIs that wired into intercoms or smartphones so they could charge admission to people walking through the actual rooms. Even if we hadn't fallen out when we did, we'd probably have fought over some of the other commissioned work she took, which I would have refused. Sensationalist TV shows had licensed our houses to provoke and harass people who had long since been acquitted. Dictators, current cases, things that felt too raw to be examined. At the time, my reason for wanting to stay with Work for Hire was simpler. I saw how much time Eliza spent on all the aspects that weren't craft, and I was happy enough making my models and ignoring the business side. We probably could have continued that way indefinitely if she hadn't gone and done the thing that ended our friendship. She didn't include that anecdote in talking with dead people either. In the book, she skips from our frigid warehouse space to her dropping out before senior year. What she omitted was her present to me on my 20th birthday. Our birthdays were fairly close to each other, so all three of the Decembers we roomed together, we threw a joint party just before winter exams started, filled with our friends and business partners, more or less the same people. She drank Jenny Light and I drank cider. I even remember that detail, mostly because later that night I got sick to my stomach and I haven't been able to touch cider since. Anyway, a few drinks in, she stood up on the desk and called for attention. Somebody handed her a canvas shopping bag. She plugged in a cable dangling from it before she passed it to me. I remember that too, so I already knew what sort of present it was, even if I didn't know the specifics. I pulled it from the shopping bag. With its plywood base, two feet by one foot, and sewing machine-sized building, it was much larger than even my high-end models. The details were crude, and it took me a minute to recognize my own childhood home. But when I did, I had a pretty clear idea what she'd done. In a shaky voice, not yet slurring, I asked the model, what's your name? A voice from inside, not mine, since I hadn't recorded this particular surprise, answered, Gwen. I couldn't tell who it was, one of the acting school kids we sometimes paid to do the job, probably. I looked over at Eliza then. I don't know why she expected me to be excited that she had programmed my life's details as she knew them into an AI box. I guess maybe she wouldn't have minded one of herself to interrogate and get her own answers back. So she didn't understand how I wouldn't feel the same. But I looked at her, and in that moment, I think she realized that maybe it had been a mistake. I glared until the smile died on her face. Too late, though. People were already pushing past to ask the fake me questions. Did I sleep with Kaz Mendelssohn last year? What about Samia? Did I really flunk ethics and engineering? The answers were eerily correct. No, yes, no. I got an extension to finish the class over the summer because I'd been too busy making murder houses, and the professor said I could turn in an essay on the ethics of making murder houses, which I did. These were all things Eliza knew about me from two and a half years in close proximity. The voice, though not my own, carried my speech patterns, my inflections. The questions took other turns. I waited for the voice to make a mistake to prove it wasn't me, but it knew my home address, my parents' names, the name of my favorite teacher in high school. I pictured Eliza secretly reaching out to my family, my online friends, asking them if they wanted to be in on a birthday surprise. I'll bet if anyone said they didn't think I enjoyed surprises, she probably just fed, fed that information into the AI too. How many siblings do you have? Someone asked, and I think I stopped breathing. 
They were just asking random questions, I told myself. None, the AI said, then paused. None anymore. I grabbed my backpack from under the bed, made sure I had keys and wallet and computer, and walked out the door. I could have stayed and kicked everyone else out, but I left them interrogating me. All I knew was I had to go before I heard any follow-up questions, or worse yet, answers. I tried knocking on some doors to find a place to crash, but everybody was at our party. Freezing rain fell as I headed for my car, but it wasn't unbearably cold. My father made me keep an emergency blanket in the trunk, and I pulled my arms and legs up into my clothes. I woke up once in the middle of the night to vomit by my back tire, slipping on the ice that had accumulated and nearly wiping out in my own sick. I stayed in other people's rooms for the rest of the exam period and applied to move over winter break. The school assigned me to another junior whose roommate was studying in Rome for the spring. I knew I was leaving the company in the lurch in terms of models, but at that point I didn't care. I was done with murder houses, done with AI voices that knew too much. In my ethics essay, I justified what we were doing. In some cases, we're giving voice to the voiceless, I wrote. The AI can represent all the players in the case. There's no speculation. If it doesn't know an answer, it says, I don't know. And sometimes it makes intuitive leaps that somebody involved in the case should have made but didn't. It remains to be seen whether any of those inferences can be proven, but the possibility of justice is exciting and may outweigh any moral or ethical qualms. I drove two hours up to Rochester on Christmas in order to pack up my stuff at a time I knew she wouldn't be there. We had cleared all the Christmas orders before the party. Yes, people buy each other murder houses for Christmas. And everyone had been rewarded with two whole weeks off. I was pretty sure she was in Barbados with her family. The room looked exactly as it had when I'd left, minus the people. Red plastic cups and beer bottles everywhere, along with the yeasty smell that said they'd been left where they fell and not rinsed out. My so-called present was on the desk where I'd abandoned it, still plugged in. I shouldn't have asked, but I was the only one in the building, and I had to know. Gwen, what happened to your brother? I don't know, the House of Wax said. But you were watching him that day. Yes. And what happened? He was playing in the yard, and I was playing a game on my phone, and then I went upstairs, and he was gone. My words in the police report, verbatim. You didn't hear anything. I told the police no. Repeat that answer, please, I said. I told the police, no. I didn't know if I'd imagined the different inflection the first time. Terrifying how that nuance changed my words' meaning. It's words. What lines of code made the difference between the two? I had one more question. What video game were you playing? The machine paused. That information had never been in any articles. I don't remember, it said at last. That I don't remember kept me from smashing the thing, though I probably should have. I'd been playing Karmic Warrior, my highest level yet. My highest level to date, I should say, since I never played it again. The machine wasn't me. Eliza hadn't recreated me. It was just an approximation. It didn't know Tristan had begged me to teach him how to play Karmic Warrior. It did know he was wearing his Tyrannosaurus t-shirt and jeans with a torn right knee and sneakers that were starting to pinch his toes. He'd complained about them just that morning because I told the police exactly what he was wearing. It knew he had a tiny white patch of hair at the crown of his head, where he'd earned eight stitches on the corner of the coffee table the year before, because that had fallen under distinguishing marks. It didn't know he snorted when he laughed. It didn't know he ran like a tiny drunk, weaving and listing. Nobody had told it about his strange fascination with bees, which he captured gently, but sometimes accidentally set loose in the house, and that he had gotten all of us stung more times than we could count. It didn't know I'd been chasing my high score in Karmic Warrior and told him to get lost. Those exact words, get lost, and I never saw him again. 
Before I made my final trip across campus with my final box, I unplugged the Gwen AI. I was halfway down the hall when I changed my mind and went back. There was a screwdriver in the top drawer. I flipped the model over and unscrewed the base. Removed the chip, shoved it in my pocket. Stopped in the kitchen on the first floor to microwave it. Didn't stick around to see the fireworks. That party was the last time I ever talked to Eliza. I say talked to, not talked with, because I'm not under any illusion. It was the kind of conversation where both people actually hear each other. She tried calling several times, but I didn't answer, and eventually she gave up. Going by what I heard from Samia and a couple of the others who were still on the payroll, she couldn't under understand what had offended me, which told me I had made the right choice. To Eliza, there was no difference between Lizzie Borden and the Haygood scandal and Tristan's disappearance. We were all just mysteries waiting for her to solve us. to a fantastic fiction at KGB, um, to our second half. And I'm Ellen Datlow, and I've been running it for even longer than Matt has. Um, and I, yeah, I, we always forget when it started, but I think it was late 90s, but I'm not sure. But it's gone through several, um, several hosts, but I've been here for a while. Anyway, our next reader is Olivia Llewellyn, who's a writer of dark fantasy, horror, and erotica, whose short fiction has appeared in over 40 anthologies and magazine, and has been in reprinted in multiple best of, best of anthologies, including the Best Horror of the Year series, Year's Best Weird Fiction, and the mammoth book of Best Erotica. Her first collection, Engines of Desire, Tales of Love and Other Horrors, received two Shirley Jackson Award nominations for Best Collection and for Best Novelette. Her story, Furnace, received a 2013 Shirley Jackson Award nomination for Best Short Story. Her second collection, Furnace, was published this year. Please welcome Olivia. So this is the first part of a novella I wrote two years ago for Brian Keene. For anthology, he published under his own imprint, and 500 copies were sold. So I'm thinking probably none of you have read it, because uh, it was part of it was one of those like special collector series that are $150, and, and a lot of people don't actually even read the books; they just collect them because it's Brian Keene and then some bitch named Livia. So a lot of the books that my story was in showed up on eBay. <laughs> That's a whole different story. Um, so this is called The One That Comes Before, and it actually is, uh, it's been picked up for a reprint by an Italian press called Independent Legions Publishing. It'll come out next year, April, in Italian and English, print and digital. So here it is. Monday, August 25th, 3.32 a.m. Alex wakes up out of dead sleep, lets out a single gasp, and freezes. She's sitting at the head of her bed, eyes wide open, hands clasped at her sweating chest, with her reading glasses entwined in her fingers, feet tucked under her rear. Something woke her. Was she sitting in her sleep? 
She can't remember her head against the pillow before she passed out. She touches the handle of her beloved knife, always strapped to her left thigh, willing herself calm. To her left, the crooked window frame clutches a dying air conditioner in its maw, slow ticks and a trickle of cool air bleeding from it into the stuffy room. Outside, the city drones its endless mechanical night song. An unexhaled breath crouches in her throat. Something passed through the darkened bedroom, a dream or a sound, and tore the sleep away from her in its wake. Alex puts her glasses on and peers over at the lamp on her dresser. The small beaded chain clinks against the stand. Her tenement building is in one of the oldest sections of the district, clogged with factories and smokestacks and machines that span entire blocks. Sometimes the distant flick of a single switch on a factory floor will rattle the rotting bones of the 200-year-old building. Construction, too, sends small earthquakes throughout her apartment. Occasionally, the couple downstairs fucks or fights or both, and the few pictures on her walls shake like chimes. None of these things happen now, though, never at this hour of the night. Nothing indigenous or natural just occurred. She can't say how she knows, except that at this hour when she's usually asleep, she's never been so achingly awake. The chain's swaying slows to a stop and the air conditioner dies altogether into silence. Alex licks her lips carefully as though something in the shadows might hear and swallows. Her mouth tastes like shit. She's used to that. Last night, another night, just like all the other ones before, standing in the tiny kitchen in her underwear, fingers tapping at her throat, pretending to stare at the cereal, when from the corner of her eye, the whiskey glowed like Rapunzel's golden plates, the captive princess waiting for the black queen to release her from a tall glass cage. And then, hours on the couch, the soft clink of ice against crystal as pixelated television images washed over the room like a gray marine fog. The last night, she told herself last night, as she has for every adult night of her life, as the hours bled out of the room and into the streets. The last night I do this. And then she tilted her head and opened her mouth, the nightly lie disappearing with the whiskey and her despair into the evening heat. Outside in the far off distance, the whine of a motorcycle sounds out, breaking the spell. She says to no one in particular, as realization steals across her that she has to pee, so much so that her muscles clench and spasm in pain, so much that once again she's surprised she didn't piss the sheets. Usually this is the moment in the night when she starts up, stumbles onto the floor and out into the small living room and into the even smaller bathroom, where she sits a bit too heavily on the toilet. None of this done with a single conscious thought, so her body knows the routine and guides itself without thought, her mind barely acknowledging the nighttime jurily, all done in a half-awake state, the better to collapse back into bed. Tonight, this morning, is different. She's too awake. She's too aware. Alex grunts slightly as she slides her tingling legs out to the floor, then stands, stretching as she runs her hands over her greasy face. It only takes two steps to address her, but when she puts her finger around the lamp chain, she looks back at the window, hesitating. The blinds move slightly. The glass doesn't quite fit the frame, and a small thread of outside air pushes its way into the room. She hesitates, then lowers her hand and walks into the next room. She doesn't want anyone to see the lights at her window, to know she's here. No need to draw attention to whatever is awake and outside. It's only four steps to the living room. The apartment is really nothing more than a single square partitioned into four. Bedroom, a small room that serves as her office, a combined living kitchen room, 
and a minuscule bathroom with an oddly undersized tub. Her parents' living room, back at the old house just outside the ruins of Lenoria, is larger than this entire unit. Still, Alex can't complain. The rent is affordable on her salary, there's enough space for all of her books, and she still gets a selfish thrill whenever she tells people she has a real two-bedroom with original wood floors. The kitchen blinds are partially open, and the light that sifts in through the slats, along with the shadows and the ghostly glow from the silent TV, now only a fixed station signal, make the space seem larger. Using the light as a guide, Alex walks into the dark bathroom. As always, she leaves flushing for morning, so the two floors below her won't wake to the sound of water rushing through the pipes and the thin plaster walls, and retaliate with the obligatory wall pounding and shouting. She's learned to moderate her movements and behavior at all times, always aware that anyone and everyone in the building can hear everything, just as she can hear them. It may be her apartment, but how she lives in it belongs to everyone else, or so it often seems. She turns the TV off before going back to bed, then checks the thermostat on the kitchen wall. 92 degrees. She shouldn't have looked. Knowing makes it worse, though she's not surprised at the number. The building is a poorly insulated heat trap, and this is the ugly heart of summer. She can expect nights like this until the end of October, when within the space of a week, the apartment will turn into a freezer. When did the soft seasons of her youth become so unforgiving and hard? A sharp gust of air lifts the kitchen blinds. With a metallic ping, they fall back against the screen. Alex tenses automatically, even though the sound is familiar. A year ago, a lone mouse made its home in the walls, driven up from the lower apartments by renovations. It had taken her a week to plug up all the cracks and holes, only to realize she'd trapped the mouse in the apartment. Two days and 15 sticky traps later, she was the victor, and there hasn't been a problem since. Still, random sounds often startle her into thinking something else has found its way inside. She walks past the half wall separating the living part of the room from the kitchen part and stares at the cupboards, the oven, the refrigerator. The, pings, the blinds ping again, half-heartedly. Everything sounds dejected in this heat. Alex turns, checks the three dish towels draped over the handle of the oven. Each one is exactly three inches apart from the other. Alex smiles as she touches each one, a gentle path with her fingers that she hopes bestows some sense of peace and balance on the invisible mover. Every evening, no matter how bad it's been, she always remembers to slide the towels together. Every morning, she always finds that the towels have been moved apart, as if some quiet spirit has fixated on this particular task and no other. Ever since it started, a few weeks after she's moved in, she's kept the TV on at night, just in case she's not the only one in the apartment who gets lonely or bored. Yes, she's drunk and delusional. There's nothing wonderful or wondrous in the world to believe in. Obsidia is a city in which magic is duty and currency, not wonder. But Alex lets herself believe in this one silly thing, easier than believing in anything else. The blinds ping again several times in rapid succession, then grow limp. Alex slowly pulls the blind cord the prickle of goosebumps spreading up her arms along the thin plastic slats. What's outside feels like no sudden summer storm. The blades of the overhead fans slow into silence, and the unusual sonorous song of all the district machinery vanishes as the steady roar of the rest of Obsidia takes its place. Brownout, she whispers to no one.
Beyond the window pane, in the small valley of cobblestone streets and squat brick buildings, the dusty nighttime slumbering of a usually bus bustling cluster of laboratories, factories, and their attendant warehouses, streetlights wink off, and all of the delicate building lights follow suit. The only remaining electrical glow emanates at the far horizon's edge, a determinedly dirty orange that shows that the brownout is, as always, local only to her area. Besher, the aging district with the most machines and equipment per square block, and the least ability to use any large number of them at once without blowing out all the circuit boards. Sometimes, walking home at nightfall, Alex gets the impression that Besher district is simply one giant machine, a great engine comprised of billions of strange and otherworldly parts, with its tiny human and non-human engineers living in its midst, perpetually tinkering, fixing, improving, until the great moment its purpose is revealed and it springs into terrible life. <laughs> These are the ridiculous things that she muses about at three in the morning. Smiling, Alex presses her nose against the mesh screen, her eyes quickly adjusting to the dark. All along the high brick factory walls, deep green and cobalt blue flames flicker behind rows of lead-lined glass panes, and faint rainbow trails of phosphorescence wind through alleys and across freight docks, their owners invisible to her mundane eyes. Occasionally something flows out of a doorway or up from a sewer grate, multi-limbed, multi-winged, languid, and at one with the night. This is the side of the city she never sees, indecipherable and mysterious, a country seemingly a million miles away as she crosses its borders every time she steps outside. There are people at her workplace. She sees them in the elevators and in the cafeteria, dark-eyed magic dabbling humans and hybrids who know these places, who visit them with impunity and ease. She wishes she had the courage to ask them to invite her in. She would learn their powers and rise over the district like a black empress of pain reveling in every astonished, horrified scream. But she knows she doesn't possess even a fraction of the strange abilities that allow them passage into the Shadow City. When she holds up her hands against the world, the only thing that happens is nothing. A disconnected voyeur, staring from a safe distance, jealous and alone. A, thaumaturg a thaumaturgically disabled dreamer, that's who she is. Three stories below, the trees in the minuscule courtyard let out long, rustling shutters. A sudden wind is rushing out of the heart of the district, like invisible tidal waters being pulled away from rust-clogged shores. The thick chains that lower the fire escape crash and sway, then grow still. Alex feels it before she realizes it's happening. The unnatural silence of absence of all sound everywhere. There is never not sound in Obsidia. There is never peace and silence. And yet here it is. And it is horrifying. She touches the side of her slender refrigerator. The metal trembles under her touch. It's running, but she can't hear it. A low, heavy boom sounds out, an explosion. She definitely heard that. Alex steps away from the window as she watches the bruised artificial glow of the city lights disappear below the horizon. It's like being punched in the chest. It can't be. Darkness rushes toward her building, gobbling up all the light in its path. This is the ocean of true darkness that swallows all before it, 
the great cosmic deep that has always been there since long before the city grew strong enough to push it back. No, she whimpers. There won't be enough time to find a flashlight or matches or candles. She grabs hold of the oven handle door behind her as the lights go out all around. In the great dark, in absolute silence, Alex stands, shivering, hand painfully clasping the middle handle, squeezing harder and harder. There has to be something, some light, some mad mage's queer glare in the cobblestone streets outside. Stretching forward, she raises her hand out to the window, where it should be. Her fingers never reach the blinds. They find nothing, no refrigerator to her left, no kitchen counter to her right. Is this magic? Is this death? Images flood her mind, fruiting like overripe fungi. The building is gone, the world is gone, she's adrift, and the tiny square of aging timber her feet rest on drifts with her like scum on a pond of water, naked and vulnerable, a weightless blip on the back of the slumbering land. And something is swimming up from underneath the city. Something is pushing and gnawing all the layers of the earth away. Vertigo washes over her. Snatching her hand back, Alex loses her balance and her grip on the oven. She pitches wildly. Where's up or down? No, she can't fall. What if she never stops? Alex grinds her bare heels and soles down against the century-old wood planks of floor, toes curled inward so that the nails scrape the wax. Yes, the planet is still below her, the building on its temperamental back. It must be. Her breath is in her throat again. As if the sound of her lungs expelling air will somehow disturb the vance silence outside, whatever outside is, if she's not there already. She feels like she's floating and... And the moment is swept away with the next rush of wind. The leaves rustle and the lights flicker on, and Besher District once more fills up with all the little sounds and movements that keep primal night at bay. Alex finds herself in front of the window, staring out at the trees, as the quiet factory buildings with their crumbling faces and faded signs, the white, warm, human glow of electric streetlights banish traces of that darker facade of the universe back into the shadows. To the north, the familiar Aurora Australis of Obsidia rises like forest fire, orange with flashes of other colors from other worlds. She steps back. The back of her foot hits something soft. Alex whips around and looks down. All three of the little dish towels are on the floor, intricately ranged in the sloping shape of a tower. Alex realizes her hands are tight fists at her thighs, nails biting into the flesh so hard that half crescents of red appear when she uncurls her fingers and stares down at her palms. Without thinking, she takes two steps forward, knocking the dish towels over, and the refrigerator doors open, the bottle of beer is open, and cold amber liquid bites and leaps down her throat as she shudders in relief. It's just one beer and she needs it. It won't affect her tomorrow morning, this morning. I've been feeling a bit sluggish, maybe skipping breakfast for a larger lunch. On this, she's an expert. This is her magic. This is what she knows. Condensation trickles down the brown glass. She runs the bottle over her neck and chest, rubbing the cold droplets against her chin, then tilts it again, letting the last of the liquid gush down her throat. All the while, her mind runs over the amount of beer left in the refrigerator, three bottles, the inches of whiskey left in the cupboard, five. Four nights until Friday, payday, and she barely has enough to cover tomorrow's weekly lunch with Ted. There's her bottle of work vodka, but that doesn't leave her file cabinet under any circumstances. 
She'll have to ration or skip a night, unless she can sneak a couple of pesos or pounds from the petty cash box. No, too soon since last time. She'll ration. The bottle clacks against the counter. She's done. Alex leans back, <coughs> stares at the crumple of fabric in front of the stove, waiting to go numb, waiting for the booze and the too late hour to work their magic and gently carry her black back into blissful sleep. What was it? Alex whispers the words as she stares at the front of the oven at the crumpled towels. As usual, nothing happens to indicate anyone or anything is heard. I ruined it. She stretches out a hand, not sure what she means by the gesture. I'm sorry. I don't know what you're trying to say. I don't know what you want me to do. Her hand remains in the air until it doesn't, until she finds herself shuffling back into the bedroom, her mind finally sliding into boozy sleep. Three beers means she has to skip a day. Who can drink after just one day of all this heat? Yeah, but if she goes to bed early, extra early on Monday, she can skip. That leaves the beer for Tuesday and the whiskey for Wednesday and Thursday and the love for payday Friday. It's like, it's like a, uh, like a, like a performed thing or is it like a... You have to go to the schedule and shut the fuck up. It's a reading. I'm going to keep reading, okay? Okay, I'm going to keep going now. All right. <laughs> and then lovely payday, Friday, and she'll be drowning in riches again. Growlers and bottles of princesses, all waiting for her to save them. She will. Beyond the dark bedroom window, the waking city whispers, a reluctant and slow rumbling of flesh and machinery beginning their endless crawl into a not-yet-broken day. Her bathrobe sits in a crumpled pile at the end of, end of the bed, a plaid flannel ziggurat. Pawing it into her hands, Alex slides onto the mattress, pulling the robe over her legs. As hot as it gets, she can't fall asleep without something covering her, a flimsy protection of sorts. Against what, she's never been able to say. She sighs into the pillow, eyes closed, mind already drifting with hums of fans. Beneath her body, the building lets out a loathsome shudder, as though picking up the distant vibrations of something unfathomable. Leviathan, circling the lithosphere, working its way up. Just the city, Alex tells herself. Perfectly natural. But she's already dreaming, and her dream self knows the truth. Nothing natural at all. So, that's the end of the first part. <laughs> Thank you. Do, do we have time for like a, a, a tad more? Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so then she gets up and she gets ready to go to work. Um, she goes to the Obsidio equivalent of Starbucks and meets some douchebags, um, <laughs> as one does. Um, uh, and then I'll, I'll pick up from there on her way to work. And then it's back into the unforgiving daylight, back down the street and across two circuses, which are now clogged with cars and trucks and even a few old horse-drawn wagons, to a small stop where she sometimes catches the Red Riverfront tram. She quickens her stride before jumping up into the back doorway as the tram slows ever so briefly before making a left. The conductor raises his hand and she nods in response. 
Every weekday, she slips onto the morning tram, and in return, every week a fat package of romance novels and mysteries is delivered to his apartment, which he admitted to Alex he sells at a nearby bookstore when he and his wife are finished with them. It's a good arrangement for both of them, one of the few she has in life. If the desire to kill him ever arose in her, she would make it quick. As usual, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you, she's kind of a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's earlier in the chapter. <laughs> Surprise. As usual, <laughs> there aren't any seats, so Alex stands to the side, one hand on a metal pole while she sips her coffee and tries to ignore the hot wind in her face as she enjoys the view. They're traveling down Avenida Anchorage, a, wild, a wide, almost elegant, tree-lined avenue that spans the entire length of the circular district, stretching in a straight west-to-east line from each of the circular river's inner shores, crowded with vast stretches of colossal office buildings and windowless warehouses. Like its equally massive north-to-south sister street, Anchorage shoots across the factory closet center section where Alex lives. It's about 10 after 9, both ends are obscured in yellow haze, but the sun is at her back, her headache is gone, the air isn't yet so fetid that she has to put her mask back on, and the monkey trees and palms that struggle so hard to survive look somewhat less horrified with their situation than usual. Alex can't help but smile to herself. Even though it's a Monday, this is going to be a pretty good day. For the next 40 minutes, the tram comes to a shuddering stop at each ensuing intersection and circus, rocking back and forth as people get off and on. Emergency sirens wail continually in the distance. Usually they signal the start of some large alchemical explosions or machine-generated quakes, but nothing seems to be happening yet, which unsettles her. Alex presses against the pole, refusing to give up her spot. Someone behind her place Someone behind her places his hand flat against her back when the tram tilts sideways, and for a few wonderful moments, she dreams of all the ways she could bend his cra and crack his fingers off, one by one. But her coffee disappears, and then so does her good mood. Never mind how late she's going to be, not even ten yet, and it is so fucking hot she could die. Mother Hydra, please make it rain, she prays, biting down on the straw. Sweat wells up out of her skin at the back of her neck, trickles in sticky rivulets down her temples, and waterfalls between her breasts. Every curve of her body weeps. In 10 minutes, it'll feel like she pissed herself. Please let it rain. If it rains, the humidity breaks. Sometimes, most of the time anyway. Of course, the roof in her apartment leaks and water drips into her bathroom and in the small office bedroom, but you don't get something for nothing and she'd rather have a little water damage than another day of 115 degree heat. Anything to be able to breathe for a few hours without a mask before it all builds up again. She sticks her head out the window like a dog as the tram lurches forward again and sighs, both in relief and as always a bit of wonder. Less than a mile ahead, Anchorage widens out, amassing more lanes 